Hi, this is Gina Master Di Casa. Thank you so much for joining me for the second episode of the Sunshine State Nerdy Foodie. Today I'm talking to Val Leitner of Oyster Catcher. She is a farmer of clams and oysters who sells directly in the Gainesville area. And she has a lot to talk about, whether it be what she's growing, how it fits into sustainability and restoration, and a little bit about how she's contributing to the local food scene here in North Central Florida. So get excited. We're going to talk about one of my very favorite things in the world, clams and oysters. I'm very excited you're willing to do this. So Val, if you would tell us a little more about yourself. Sure. So I'm excited too. Thanks so much for asking me to do this, Gina. <laughs> so tell me what you're doing with the Oyster Catcher project. So several years ago, I started working with a clammer in Cedar Key. He has a hatchery and he also has his own clam leases. Several years ago, I started working part-time on a shrimp boat and I also occasionally work for a crabber. And so I wanted to find a way to diversify income on the water. And so aquaculture is farming. Mm -hmm. And so I asked to start working over in Cedar Key to learn more about that. Doug, he agreed to let me help, help him out and be my mentor of sorts. And so anyway, I've, I did that for several years. And I'd always heard that Horseshoe, because of its salinity level, which is lower in general than Cedar Key, kind of significantly, is better for the oysters than the clams, and vice versa with Cedar Key, with the clams being better. And remind me now, Cedar Key is essentially kind of due west of Gainesville, and so it's on the Gulf Coast, and Horseshoe Beach is a little further north. You know, I used to think that, but until someone mentioned it and I looked at the map, it's more like Cedar Key is a little further south, and Horseshoe is almost directly due west. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really bizarre, and you wouldn't think that because of State Road 24. Right. You think you're going straight out, but you're actually jogging a little to the south. So Cedar Key, uh, most people know Cedar Key and don't know Horseshoe, which is fine. In some ways, I hope that it stays that way for development purposes. <laughs> but So Cedar Key is uh, two towns south of Horseshoe on the Gulf Coast. Okay. So it goes Cedar Key, heading north, Suwannee, heading north, Horseshoe, and then heading further north, you have Steen, Hatchie, and Gina. I got into learning about it, and then I got my own leases. And so I started to do oysters and clams. And, you know, it's it, there's a lag time between when you plant and at least a year, and then when you can start selling. So when I started selling, I knew I needed a name. So I decided to go with Oyster Catcher. They're one of my favorite birds. And you hear that when I hear them on the water, you know, I can't have a bad day. They're just so full of, like, you know, joie de vivre and just so great and so cheerful. And so, uh, so I started to sell the oysters and clams last year. Very cool. So how do you plant or farm for clams or oysters? How does that work? Because I think a lot of people don't realize aquaculture is really farming, but in the water. So how does yeah. it work? How do you do it? Well, it is farming in the water, but it's, it's like, but it, it's not a one-to-one -one for farming on land. It's like, it's like farming on land in the dark in a landslide. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because most of the time you can't see anything. You don't know where it is. And you have to remember or you have to triangulate. 
And then I say in a landslide because the water is always moving. Oh, yeah. So, and you have the tide, and then you have the wind and the waves. And so the water is always trying to take away whatever you have. So you can't just stand or go down and do something. I mean, there's times, you know, I have a weight belt that has 50 pounds on it, and there's times when the tide's running so strong, I have to sit, literally sink down to the bottom as quickly as I can and grab onto something wow. because the tide is trying to take me away. <laughs> so it's, it's a very interesting process, and I'm trying to divorce my, my mental concepts of land-based agriculture, aquaculture, because it, it makes it frustrating to me. Because you can't just set something down and expect it to, it's more inefficient and time consuming, aquaculture is, than agriculture. Um, so it's the clams, you asked about the clams and the oysters and how you do it. So there's a variety of different ways that people do it. And it varies by area, personal preference, okay. things like that. So as far as the clams, the clams are a lot less, I think, a lot less labor intensive. Uh, a lot less gear intensive than the oysters generally. Mm -hmm. So in general, the industry, at least where we are, they use what's called a clam bag, and okay. it's a mesh bag, and you have different size mesh depending on the size of the clams. Okay, that makes sense. So they have what they call nursery bags, which are a variety of millimeter mesh sizes, depending again on the size of your clams. And then the final grow-out bags, or grow-out bags, which is for the clams once they get to a certain size and you plant them down in the bags in a series of bags, usually between eight and 10 bags long, zip tied or tied together and to use rebar to weight it down and usually some kind of a cover net to protect it from fish. And so the final grow out is put down and will be down from, you know, anywhere from, you know, depending on when the farmer is breaking his seed down and putting it out anywhere from 10, 12 months to 18 months and how fast they grow, what the food supply is, what the fresh water was that year, any storm events and so on. In a nutshell, that's the clams. And, but for both clams and oysters with aquaculture, it's required by the state mm -hmm. that you purchase your seed. Okay. And you can use some wild seed, you know, and oysters, you, you can't help it because the oysters, they will set, you know, the spat, the swimming, I think it's a villager stage and they're swimming around and then they decide to set somewhere, usually where there's other oysters. Okay. So you can't avoid getting natural oyster on right. your oysters. But anyway, you have to produce every year, the state requires an audit uh, of your of the contents and the stock of your leases, clams and oysters or whatever you're growing, and you have to provide the uh, receipts from uh, allowed hatcheries okay. for and allowed they're, stock. And they're, and they're keeping control of that for fear of, um, I don't know, invasive clams or bad things that come from other places, or why do they, why do they um, regulate it like that? I'm not sure their exact reasoning. I believe, I've heard a lot of things, mm -hmm. but I don't, I can't speak for the state and why, what they would say. Okay. But the things that I have heard is that they do it so that they know that you are actively farming. Okay. So you can't just go out, you have to have an application process and you have to, it's inexpensive for the lease every year. I mean, 
you know, my leases are two acres and I have on the bottom and water column um, abilities there. And, you know, I think I pay $100, $116 a year. Okay, so it's really like a regulation idea. And it's also probably to make sure if you're on that piece, nobody else will come along and try to take your space. I mean, it's really a way to manage the space. And this, of course, is in the water right off the coast, not too far, because it's in that brackish water, right? Yeah, so I think it is about management. I think it is about uh, them having, you know, it's also, I think, a numbers thing. Uh, the state loves numbers, sure. as you know. Yes. <laughs> and so it gives them, you know, if they have actual receipt from the hatchery, where are your, probably your most authoritative number is going to come from, where there's money involved. Sure. So your receipts are going to show what you spent on the seed from the hatchery and the exact number. So those receipts will show the state at least what people are getting in their hands and then supposedly planting. And then those receipts are also required by the USDA if you get what's called NAP insurance for as a crop. The USDA offices are going to want to see those receipts too. You know, if they're insuring your project... Yeah. They want to know that you really bought it, yeah. of course. And I think there is also some, you mentioned uh, a species. So mercenaria, mercenaria is the common clam right. that you find. It's the clam that you bought from I, me. I Thank you bought. very much. <laughs> and you enjoy all on your own, which is awesome. So every time I come <laughs> buy clams from Val, she always says, what are you going to do with them? And I say, well, I'm going to eat them. And I <laughs> genuinely go home and steam them up in some uh, wine and a little bit of garlic and a little bit of parsley and sit down and eat the whole batch all by myself because nobody else in my family likes them <laughs> and I don't see any reason to share. No, I don't. And, and I don't see any reason to share usually either. That's why I have to have more <laughs> if I want to share or if other people actually want to eat some. But those are mercenaria mercenaria. Okay. And they are actually not, that it's an eastern clam and they are not supposed to be in the Gulf. Oh, so those are already a species that are not supposed to be there. The, the gulf clam is, uh, I don't know if there's other species of clam. Uh, some people call a, a fan oyster a pen clam, so I'm not sure exactly which species that is. But um, the species of clam that is in there is Mercenaria campichiensis. And I do have some of those. I, I bought some seed from this great hatchery called bay shellfish down in Teresia and he had some so i bought some and i'm hoping that i can start selling some of those too so that people can have a native clam and also the mercenaria mercenaria and another reason i'm doing that is because i believe in restoration aquaculture mm -hmm. so i believe that what i am doing should help should supply some kind of ecosystem service in return for my use of that land sure. and that water and so I'm hoping that by having the campeaches down, I can, you know, they're going to spawn. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that that spawn will help the, the native, the natives survive more and be more plentiful too. And there's so much focus right now in trying to keep, you know, restore the Gulf, keep the Gulf in its or either as, as positive as it can be, as original as it can be. And of course, there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't always happen, but I've been really excited to see all of the efforts being made in that area where from Cedar Key North, I mean, there's just a lot of different projects and programs trying to keep the Gulf natural and healthy and beyond. So I think this is, this is part of, part of all of it. Um, so talk to me a little bit about oysters. So, sure. so you got clams and, and 
we, we, we I know there's different sizes of clams, but they're mm -hmm. all pretty much the same kind of clam, it sounds mm -hmm. like. Yeah. So tell me about the oysters you've got. So the oysters, again, you have to buy the seed. Mm -hmm. And I also get those from my buddy Kurt mm -hmm. at Day Shell Fish. And so I buy what's called a diploid oyster, mm -hmm. which is a natural oyster. Okay. And I'm not sure when it happened, but there's a company up in New Jersey at least several years ago genetically modified a natural oyster, I believe chemically, and then you had what's called a tetraploid, and then you breed a tetraploid with a natural oyster, a diploid, and you get a triploid. So it's supposed to be, and supposed to, I say that because we know the way that Mother Nature works, and so it's nothing is ever an if but a when. A triploid is what you see a lot of oyster growers growing, and a lot of them grow them in cages on the top, and it's the perfect capitalistic oyster. It is an oyster that is meant to get ripe, full of gametes, nice and firm, have a good bite texture, have, be nice and creamy and full, and stay that way, mm -hmm. and not spawn. Okay. So uh, again, restoration aquaculture, I want my oysters to spawn, mm -hmm. and I just try to educate my customers that about two to three times a year my oysters will be poor. But that only works out to about four months out of the year that they're really like that. Okay. Eight months out of the year, they're usually pretty good. So I choose the diploid because other people can, it's fine that they want to grow a triploid, but I'm not into that kind of okay. thing. And so I want to do the natural oyster. I want my oysters to spawn and contribute to mm -hmm. oyster restoration by putting those larvae out into the water columns. I grow them on the bottom mm -hmm. and I, you know, the guys who do floating cages, they have beautiful oysters. They're more consistently shaped than mine. They're cleaner than mine and they spend a lot of time taking care of them. Okay. I'm also not that kind of person because, so you mentioned the leases being not that kind of person. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I, I, I meant it. I meant really, really I'm lazier than they are. I think. You're more efficient with your time. Well, well right. Like, is that the new, like That's the, the new like the, the time engine, like efficiency yes. engineer is really yes. lazy. Um, but you know, the other piece is, is that I like a kind of set it and forget it and let nature run its mm -hmm. course. And you know, every time I have an energy efficient outboard, but every time I go out there, it's more gasoline. Sure. And so I try to be as efficient as possible. And, you know, I do go out three or four days a week, but do different, whether it's for harvesting or taking care of things, I do different things. How, how do oysters grow? How do you, so it's the same kind of thing, right? You Okay. A lot of folks uh, have floating cages. And again, you know, um, that is a personal preference. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have leases that are not as violent as mm -hmm. my area, you know, because where my leases are, there's a slough that uh, runs along not far from the back side mm -hmm. of the leases, and it can get pretty rough there. Okay. And if we have any kind of a blow, you know, it, 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 those guys with the floating cages, their lines are all the time coming loose, and you'll see half their lines of cages out, off, out wow. yonder floating, or, you know, the crabbers are all the time picking up their cages that have busted off. Mm -hmm. They're, they have floated up in the marsh, and they lose a a lot of money that way, unfortunately. Mm -hmm, sure. So I always try to tell them when I see their cages floating and grab them for them. So you have to 
choose what system you're going to use. And there's so many different systems. Mm -hmm. There's a woman I met from Ireland who is doing this system that they like a lot in Europe. And she was talking about how they have these trestles, kind of like a, a railroad trestle made with rebar. And it's these racks. And because of their tides they can have the oyster cages sitting on the racks and then they just go out at low tide a couple times a month on the spring tide, which mm -hmm. is associated with the full moon and the new moon, and they flip the cages. Okay. And then that helps fouling or they clean the cages. A lot of guys will use a pressure washer to clean the cages and stuff like that. Oh, wow. I do all my stuff on the bottom. Bottom of the line, there's lots of different in the water column mm -hmm. stuff you can do, bottom stuff you can do, and floating stuff you can do, and it really just work, uh, depends on what your preferences are, mm -hmm. the area you're in, with your weather, wind, tides, okay. and then what kind of oyster you're growing. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of guys who have been growing triple, my good friend who's a crabber, he described how he has seen oysters use a scallop, will okay. go like this, but obviously an oyster's not going to do that, but has seen an oyster spit out water to move itself over time from one part of the bar to another oh, wow. part of the bar. But that's only the single oysters. Okay. And I've seen oysters like that. I haven't seen them do that, but I thought that was an interesting observation. That is observation. really interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is I'm a big fan of oysters, but the reason I don't buy oysters from you is because I'm too lazy to shuck them. <laughs> and I need somebody to shuck them because I'm a bad shucker, so I usually rely on friends or a party, yeah. and then I get oysters. Um, but I am I am pretty notorious for oysters and liking oysters, and so now it's kind of a running joke that I always have. If I go somewhere, if they sell oysters like on the half shell, I am buying them. Yeah. Um, so that's just how I operate, and I really like the fact that you know you can go to different parts of the nation or even the world and have different flavors, different oh, yeah. kinds, the brininess. How do they grow? How do they get bigger? So they eat different algaes that are in the water column. I mean, they filter the water, so they mm -hmm. filter out a lot of different things. Doug talks about the different types of algaes that they eat and at different stages. You know, when they're okay. little, they, like the baby clams a lot, will get a, an algae like a, like isocrisis or something like that that's extremely small and that they can handle. But then when they get larger, they can handle much larger things. There's different algaes th that are present in the summer or bloom at different times with water temperature and salinity and other stuff. I don't know a whole lot about, yeah. you know, their feeding and the different species. Yeah, but that you they know, eat. they they eat what's in the water and yeah. and it's it's a natural phenomenon and yeah. it does filter the water. Yeah. And I know I've seen research studies that show having oysters filtering the water definitely improves the quality of the water. So that's one of the reasons why it's good to restore it, not just because obviously it's a it's the right thing to do. Um, the University of Florida has a big giant um, reef restoration project out in the water out there. And so they've been building essentially with giant rocks a, a reef. And it's really designed to stimulate the acceleration of, of uh, the oysters and clams and the shellfish industry and um, to improve the water. And it's, it was a nationally funded project. So it was, cool. it's a very cool project out there. It's near Swanee. So, that, so I am aware of that kind of work. And the UF has a lot of researchers that work in different related things. Mm -hmm. But I really like just talking about the food. And I like yeah. talking about, you know, the, the actual fun of it. So people come and buy oysters and clams from you either. Um, so they order them from you. And then they pick them up at one of these farmer's market opportunities and or... 
Um, I know the East End Eatery is serving your oysters and clams because yep. I saw it on their menu and they're very proud to say so. Oh, she's sweet. I, I go know. in and shuck for her. Do you? Yeah, the chef and I, they'll order the oysters and, you know, I don't have a shucking house so I can't sell shucked oysters. Okay. But she told me, you know, we don't really have the time to just shuck them all ourselves. And I said, well, I'll bring my gloves and my knives and I'll just shuck them for you. And then, then the chef was kind enough to jump in and help. So, you know, on delivery day, it's fun because we just stand around in the kitchen and tell stories and shuck oysters for <laughs> half an hour or whatever it is. Well, so. I may have to crash that someday. So okay, that yeah. That would be super fun. I would just be an eater. I would yeah. contribute positively. <laughs> um, so interestingly, I, a good friend of mine got, earned her PhD several years ago, and we had a big party. And so my contribution to the party is I hired an oyster guy out of Cedar Key, and he drove all the way in with a bushel, and I paid him to stand there and shuck them and serve them until the group couldn't eat anymore. Awesome. And it was the best thing we did, and we've joked about we need to bring the guy back because it was just so fantastic. So I do think there's a market in town for somebody to come shuck at parties. I think there's not a lot of places that serve raw oysters in town. There's actually really? just a few. Um, and so they're a little hard to find in, in Gainesville, which is kind of interesting because, you know, we're in Florida. You think, how hard could this be? But right. it's limited. And usually I get most of my oysters not in Gainesville. I usually get them when I travel somewhere else. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with yeah. me. There's some opportunity here. You can, uh, this could be, this could be yet another side gig because you don't have enough gigs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're sitting in working food. And if you wouldn't mind, tell, tell me a little bit about what working food is and what they're trying to do here. Well, working food is actually downstream from the local food movements that several of us started many years ago, as you know. You know, Anna Prizia and Stephanie Hamblin and Maya Valesco and Melissa Dessau and a bunch of others, you know, working towards a local food system for a long time. So under Blue Oven Kitchens and Forage. Mm -hmm. And so then Anna and I worked on bringing those two together and we did a feasibility study to how does that work and how does that, what does that look like? And so then uh, at the end of that study, Working Food was born. And at that time, you know, that's when I started working on the shrimp boat. And so I, I bowed out of that, <laughs> the nonprofit sector. You know, I'm really good at facilitating things and I'm really good at project management and but I'm not so good at finding funding to pay myself because I just okay. see all the things that have to get done and I just want to do them and I want somebody else to solve the money problem. I understand. So that makes me a terrible uh, nonprofit director actually. So <laughs> I was like, I'll make more money on the shrimp boat, which is true. So anyway, so then Anna and Melissa took the reins, really, and ran with it, and, uh, and Maya. So Working Food is still nonprofit, mm -hmm. uh, works with the community to raise awareness of local food, food insecurity, food equity issues. They do seed saving. They have their seed distributions. They work really hard, especially Melissa. I think that's kind of her ballywick of working really hard to get uh, seeds that are acclimated to north central florida for the seed distributions all kinds of other things with farm to school and getting school kids involved and using gardens as teaching mechanisms and then of course there's the kitchen incubator and commercial kitchen reality and getting farmers into the commercial kitchen for value-added processing and you know as a, as a key infrastructure component and then there's all of the community things that they do, like when COVID began, they very quickly 
and the Bo Diddley market was gone. This so was the, the downtown <clears throat> farmers market in Gainesville, they that closed because of COVID. Yeah. And so they very quickly rallied and created this, used the parking lot, the horseshoe-shaped parking lot, uh, very ingeniously to yes. have a drive-through farmer's market. Yes. And so I came and I told Anna last year, I said, hey, you know, I want to start selling my shellfish because I was getting everything together. And I said, I'll come and help you and help manage your drive-through market um, and pass out stuff as a volunteer. I just see how it goes and then, you know, if there's space, I'll join in, which there was. So it was really great to be a part of that process and see um, how just a couple people can make such a huge difference. And on those pickup days, Gina, we would have, I think, I mean, I can't tell you how many, like 300 plus cars come through here to pick wow. up local food. Wow. So it was really great that those people could still have access to fresh local food and the farmers could still have access to a market point. Mm -hmm. and Right, and that forward. was one of the big issues with COVID is the farmers <laughs> suddenly lost their ability to sell to restaurants or just depending on where their market was or how they would distribute things. So it might be a farmer's market, a lot of them sell to local restaurants, etc., and everything just ground to a halt. And here in North Central Florida, I think we were able to do pretty well and accommodate our local folks decently, but there are other parts of the state where they were at like green bean time and other major crops that they sell pretty much in industrial sizes. They had to just abandon it in the fields and it was a combination of all of the above, but it was COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really interesting to see where we are this year in 2021 yeah. after COVID. Um, I also think people are a lot more aware of what they're eating. One of the things that I've read some about is people are eating a little healthier. Mm -hmm. On one hand, you might be baking more and, you know, right. baking bread. There's that bread phase. Yeah. Um, but people are trying to eat healthy. They understand the point of local food. And um, they really do appreciate being able to have access to various things. And here in North Central Florida, a lot of people think, oh, what grows around here? And honestly, the answer is kind of everything. Yeah. And we just don't realize it, especially those who are urban dwellers who don't really venture out. But once you get out past the, the urban area, you realize, oh, it's all farmland. <laughs> There's a lot of farmland. And of course, our coasts are another form of farmland. So your, your examples with the leases um, and that and your leases for aquaculture are managed by the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, correct? So the aquaculture division. Yeah, the aquaculture yes. division. So that's what part of the state regulates it. Um, but I've, I've talked before a few times to different clam farmers in Cedar Key in particular, and um, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work, but it's, it's very rewarding. And now Cedar Key is really known for clams. It used to be, back in the day, it used to be known for mullet. And then mm -hmm. when the state banned net fishing, they couldn't catch the mullet like that anymore. And so they evolved into um, doing clam, a lot of clams. And now I think they're doing a little more on the oyster front. According to the University of Florida Food and Resource Economics Department, they do an analysis overall, but Florida ranks ninth in the United States overall for total sales of aquaculture products. It's number one in ornamental fish, so like the pretty fish. It's number two in alligators, and that's cool, but I don't think you and I really want to farm alligators. But it's third in the nation for clams and crustaceans. Hmm. And we produce in the state of Florida, we produce 16 million mollusks and 14.3 million crustaceans. Hmm. So that's just a lot. And I, I think, you know, coming back to your very beginning, 
point about this is really farming, but it's in water. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure the average person real thinks of it as farming. I think they think of it as, oh, you just go get them. But yeah. of course, you've explained you plant them and then you maintain them. And yeah. then it sounds like you have to maintain them a lot. Um, and so there's, there's a lot more to it than just plain old, I'm going to go get some clams. Yes. And that's one thing that the director consumer sales and people who are, you know, in the friends and family of, you know, know your, like a la USDA, know your farmer, know your yes. food, uh, have been very reasonable with is understanding that the price point does have to be just with any other mm -hmm. local farmer you go for your carrots or your beef or whatever. If you're paying the value of your food, it's going to be a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there are economies of scale. Sure. So there are bigger guys in Cedar Key who can sell their clams and oysters significantly uh, less expensive mm -hmm. than I can because of that. Sure. Um, but the bottom line is uh, if you you get what you pay for and it's to a certain extent, and there is a lot of work. Oh, yeah. And there are a lot of hard days, and there's a lot of days where – it doesn't matter if it's blowing 30 and it's 42 degrees out, you got to go. Yes, you know. Cuz it's farming. It's farming and you've got to go do it. And but you know, the other thing I'd like to say is uh, just like farming on land, you have issues of species and species development and genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. You have issues of monoculture. Mm -hmm. You have issues of predation, mm -hmm. and you and you have issues of permaculture versus more input reliant fossil fuel reliant systems. Okay. And so, like permaculture, truly sustainable, not just greenwashing sustainable, but truly sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, and how you handle all of these things and. I notice the difference. Uh, occasionally, you know, a friend of mine will ask if I will put uh, some of his brood stock mm -hmm. on one of my leases. And because there are so few clams and oysters being grown in Horseshoe compared mm -hmm. to Cedar Key, most of the leases are empty. Okay. But there's so much more nutrition in the water. I would like to see aquaculture move to a more permaculture way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I realize that that's a giant shift. <laughs> yeah, we're not solving that today. Yeah, right. But it's, I think your your focus on the sustainability of the entire project is really important. Yes, and but it's also you know you have so much nutrition that's available in the water, mm -hmm. and when you have these high density lease areas, I totally get that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time those high density lease areas pulling nutrition out affects not only the products that the farmers themselves are growing mm -hmm. and how quickly they'll grow, how well they'll grow, how well they'll develop, but also it affects the wild species who rely on those same algaes. It's, I would like to see us to start the conversation of finding a more permaculture aquaculture okay. so that the farmers can exist but it also, we can throw all the seed in the world out there and have all the diploids in the world out there. But if the high density lease areas are creating a huge impact in nutrition, mm -hmm. all of those little guys aren't going to go anywhere. Right. So. Well, I think it's really important to think about the big picture. You know, everything right. is related. Totally. And it's really easy to just think, oh, they're clams or they're just oysters. How, 
complicated could this be? But you're very right. If you don't have the right nutrition or the other supports within, they're not going to be successful. Right. Or, I mean, you, you know, what's sheet flowing off the land? You know, horseshoe is surrounded by a lot of big-time silviculture. Sure. So whatever's in the crabbers all talk about weird times of, like, mm -hmm. seagrass die-off and whatever. So it's like, or what's coming out of the Suwannee? Someone who drives a Prius and eats organic food and then they, they live right next to the Gulf and then they sprinkle herbicide and pesticide in great abundance on their lawns. Yes. And it's like, the water, the water's right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I really relish when I see the whole system start to come into play and have those conversations about the whole system. Well, I think it's really important. And, you know, I, I think one of the challenges is... We all need to eat. The state yeah. is growing. Yeah. And how do we continue to keep your industry alive, feed people, balance people moving into the state, and where are they going to live? There's, it's very complicated. And it that's is. really what Florida's been struggling with is how do you balance all of these needs and interests and issues? And you know, a friend of mine, uh, a doctor, was saying you need to have, I think it was more like omega threes or something and wanted to him something to, like that yeah. something yeah i wanted him to take a supplement and so i started noodling around online and i realized if he just ate six oysters a day it would be the same as the supplement it's like, yes well i've got oysters well <laughs> yeah. I, th I think we've just solved our own problem yeah yes that's very you're very right cool well is there anything else you want to tell me about all your cool exciting life and what you're up to oh we have the best office that there is out there on the water Mother Nature is beautiful, even on the days when she's harsh, you know. And it's not a harshness in a mean way. It's just, it's a, a beautiful way to work, and mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. And, and it's also really tasty and delicious, and I think shellfish bring a lot of people joy. And, you know, it uh, gives people a lot of convivial excuses. That's true. Which is wonderful. And, I mean, gosh, there's so many good things about it, you know, like, Oysters Rockefeller, Oysters mm -hmm. New Orleans style, uh, Clams Casino, or like you, just, I mean, just, just steam them, steaming them. them. Get, get some butter, I'm a happy lady. With a, a good, freshly baked baguette. The only other point that I find is a, an educational point that a lot of people wonder about is uh, our months with mm. oysters. Oh, right. That's, yeah, that's the big urban, I don't know if it's an urban legend or, or history or what. Well, it's... Uh, I think it's a good, just handy, jingly standard for sure. people to remember uh, because, you know, a lot of people aren't uh, in touch with uh, the ocean, and so they're receiving an oyster far inland, and so it's really good for them to have something like that. But in general, you know, I rely on the water temperature and the salinity, which are the two, I think, control factors for Vibrio, which is the bacteria that okay. they're worried about. And so I've, I've read a couple of studies on Vibrio, and there was one study that suggested that, in fact, you know, temperature was less important than the salinity level for controlling the growth of the bacteria. But, you know, as the water temperature rises, it's, it grows more. That would make sense, yeah. And sure. you don't want to eat a hot oyster no. <laughs> necessarily. So, um, I mean, I have eaten them out of the water, like fresh out of the water, you know, when the water's been 90 degrees, but, you know, it's, I don't know, I always kind of just taste them first, and then, not that you could taste it, but you can taste, I've had a bad oyster, I, yes. 
in my mouth before and it's really disgusting. You can really, you, you not, know, I tasted immediately. It I took it you right spit out. it out. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of times you can smell them, even if there's a dead one in the cage, you know, you'll smell it as soon as you bring it overboard. But, but as far as the Armand thing, it's a good rule of thumb. Uh, but that's why I always give my customers the salinity level and the water okay. temperature. Yes so that they can judge for themselves if they would like to cook the oyster because it cooks out. Yes. So if you have an oyster that came out of 95 degree water or somebody temperature abused it and it has Vibrio, if you cook it, it'll be gone. Okay. It might not with all the other bacteria and the off flavors that that produces, it might not be the best tasting oyster, but, it, but as far as Vibrio, it would be okay. okay. So I tell my customers that and I make that information available so that they can make their own best educated decision you know, some of my customers, they do not want to eat an oyster once the water temperature goes up to 80 degrees or above, okay. you know. So I let them decide what they'd like to do. That's fantastic. And so am I right that the, you're supposed to eat them only in the months that the, the letter R is, right? Raw. It's raw. Raw oysters are good, are supposed to be cleared, and I realize that's are better in the m months with an R in it. That's, and that's the rule of thumb. Okay. But, you know, I mean, there are some September september or october and the water temperature is still very hot and it has been for a long time sure. and so in my mind that's probably worse for bacteria than if you eat uh you know after like this winter you know the water temperature is just now up to 70 degrees okay. it's been very cold it has been cold and you know with the the cold weather here I, you know i'm going in the water tomorrow and i'm wearing two wetsuits because i i guarantee it's going to be less than 70 degrees so having a, a you know next month in may or june is going to be far better than having oysters in september that even though there's an r you know the state has us uh we have a little table we have to conform to with uh, marginally with clams but mostly with oysters and and it's very strict Okay. And as a processor, you know, we have to have a calibrated thermometer. And in Vibrio months, we have to take an oyster meat temperature okay. to make sure that they get down to 55 degrees or below within two hours. And we have to have them at the dock by a certain time. If they're not, then, and they catch you, you know, they'll just take the oysters from you. So, you know, they, they provide some really good standards to follow okay. for food safety. Well, that's actually fantastic. Yeah. Um, very good. Well, so it's thank you. Yeah. I want to say thank you. Yeah. And, thank you. And I look forward to ordering more clams in the near future when I have a moment to sit and eat them. So Yay. thanks. Yeah. You're I welcome. It. Thank you, Gina. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today for this episode of the Sunshine State Nerdy Foodie. Look forward to the next episode. I hope you choose to subscribe.